What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. A little experiment. I don't usually do topical podcasts or even multiple podcasts in a day, but I think it's Thursday, October 10, 2019. It's World Mental Health Day. I have a huge interest in the brain and in mental health. And I think for today, I'm going to publish a few podcasts. Uh, I think it's totally fine to do this. It might seem a little assertive, a little aggressive, a bit fighty, trying to fight for your time. But kind of coincidentally, I started therapy this week for the first time in about 15 years. And then yesterday, I realized that it was World Mental Health Day. And I know everything has a day, but I like this day. And I've been, I've been around the topic for a little bit. Uh, back in Australia, I don't know when it was, a decade or so ago, there was a group of us that crowdsourced. We put together a book, mostly from bloggers, and, and it was very much about the male point of view on growing up and mental health. There were female contributors as well. That book was called The Perfect Gift for a Man, uh, and maybe it was more than 10 years ago, and they, they were somewhere like the early experiments some of us had in the Australian industry of sharing our personal stories because it wasn't really done that much back then. Uh, and it was interesting to, to it's, I've always I always find it interesting to see who and and how people well who interacts with quote unquote content such a flaccid word at times but uh, content dealing with mental health because in a lot of respects I feel that people duck it they avoid it they don't want to see it and I totally get that like if you're having a good day or if you think that people talking about mental health sounds negative I understand that and and it's not just that but it's also on the internet at least, you know, liking something, retweeting something that's a bit dark. People would be nervous that it might reflect on them, that that they might have to pay a price for that later, that other people might think that because they liked or retweeted it, they're going through it, therefore they're unstable, so on and so forth. There's just a lot of baggage with the topic. I do remember with The Perfect Gift for a Man that uh, from memory, there were a lot of, a lot of men who talked about mental health, but... I f remember that a lot of women seem to buy it and pass it on. And by a lot, I think we only sold a few hundred books. I don't know. Uh, but it was an interesting thing. And anyway, so I'm going to post a few things today. I've got a, some phone-ins. I don't even know what to call these things. There's some voice messages. I use Anchor for podcasting, or to publish it at least. And I realized recently that I can receive voice messages. and it's awesome, you know, having people just essentially phone in or, or send me a file and hear their voices and the crispness of the voices and the honesty is beautiful. So I'm going to share you share with you some of the some other people's points of view on mental health. I've got a long, very long actually for me at least, uh, interview with Tom Goodwin, who's pretty renowned on the internet. It's very prolific, and we wanted to talk about mental health. We got into it. We avoided it. Then we got into dating and then we really got into talking about mental health. If you've heard some of my recent walks and talks, walk and talks, you will hear me repeat a few themes and thoughts because sometimes I've done those walk and talks just around an interview like the one I did with Tom and so a few things are on my mind. And so you, you might hear some repetition. I do get nervous about what I'm saying. I'm trying, I'm trying to share uh, and rightly Tom actually picks me up on the word oversharing it's just that man some you know some of us grow up with a lot of stories and sometimes other people don't want us to admit that we had those stories they deny those stories ever happened you're like i'm still thinking about stuff a long time after these things happened and it's weird you know i try to put the stories to work it's like i don't feel that i need them like i don't i don't I don't really want them. I don't feel that I need them, but they keep popping up. So I'm, I'm, I'm in therapy and I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm kind of doing, doing it in an excited way because on one hand, you know, the past few years have been super amazing and this is how I talk. You know, this is, that was my American accent, by the way, super amazing. It's not an accent. It's, it's just an Americanism. Uh, and I feel really like I'm individuating, as Carl Jung would say. On the other hand, there's just been this very long history of uh, of, of melancholy that I, I want to deal with because it can flare up. So 
Oh, and then there might be a third episode. Let's see. I've got a few interviews today. I usually bank interviews. I'm doing about eight or nine interviews today. And if we touch the topic of mental, touch on the topic of mental health, I might put an interview up live. So there might be three episodes today. And that's cool. You'll deal with it. You'll, some of you will listen to all of them. Some of you will dip in and out based on a name or based on how much time you have. The podcasting world is, is this beautiful dark underground where people dip in and out of things as they choose. And it's totally fine. I'm going to read you a little thing that I posted on the Facebook Sweathead group yesterday. Uh, you know, it's it's just weird. Like, I want to talk about this, and I'm like, why do you want to – are you trying to get attention for yourself by talking about this? Like, what's that all about? There's definitely been parts of my history where I've done bad, you know, bad things to myself to try to get attention. Uh, it didn't usually work. I write, and writers do seek attention often, not always, but often from a place of introversion. So there's this weird world, and I'm talking through this a little bit in therapy, where you 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 can withdraw from people, from rooms, from groups where you don't want to jockey for attention, and you then express in a very honest, very candid, very like I'm not saying I write in an, in an electric way, but in an electric way in in public but you're distant from it it's so it's weird so i'm going to read you this thing that i wrote and then i'm going to play you some thoughts from people who posted comments and then i'm going to read you a part of my book i'm still i'm like in the fifth edit now i'm not going to call it the sixth and i had a moment yesterday where I, I was like, I think I, I think I'm enjoying reading part of this, and that is so relieving. Like, that's not ego talking. That's like, oh my gosh, I spent so much time writing this. Can I bear looking at it? And yesterday, I had a, like about three or four hours going through this edit. I'm like, oh, I, I think it, I think this is okay. So, if I'm brave enough, and I will be brave enough, I'm going to read you some some of the book. So anyway, here's this message from from the Sweathead group on Facebook. It's so supportive. Like, God, I. <laughs> Really appreciate people being in there and being so transparent and honest. Uh, you know, part of me wishes I had access to this younger, but hey, we are where we are. So here, here we go. I just saw it's World Mental Health Day this Thursday. Funnily enough, I started therapy for the first time in 15 years yesterday. That was Tuesday. I feel so privileged and exhilarated to do what I get to do, but I've struggled to outrun my stories and the story and the feelings those stories carry with them. I don't use words like exhilarated easily. You know, when I interview Tom and I use that word amazing to describe the fact that he works, he's got a pretty high profile role at Publicis, goes around the world, and yet online, on the internet, he's super frank. And I'm like, that was my American accent again, super frank. And I'm like, that's amazing that you're able to keep your job. And I mean it, like, but exhilarated, amazing. These aren't words that I grew up with using. They're too emotional for, for my world. Okay. I felt strong melancholy since I was very young. I told myself it helped me write, and it did. It does, and I love writing. But it can take my brain places I don't want to go or stay. It's a vice grip on my soul at times. Like many of us people I'm close to have experienced sexual assault, self-harm, suicide, palliative care, terminal illness at a young age, divorce, violence, long bouts of depression, low self-worth, and a lack of community support. Sometimes these things lodge in us. Uh, my home, what keeps me going is the perhaps arrogant idea that I want to spend the next phase of my life helping people who think for a living live. It's something I'm still learning, learning but it's an idea I return to whenever I feel the funk edging its way onto me. I, I mean that. you know. I know a lot of people talk about virtue signaling and vice signaling and you just saying stuff to look cool. Yeah, probably. I don't know. I don't know whether what I'm writing about here is virtue or vice signaling or both and does it even matter because that's what we do as humans. So, so what? Uh, but I do feel this because uh, I look into the eyes of people when I'm doing talks around the place and I look at, into the eyes of people when I'm getting DMs late at night from people who've just lost jobs, from people who are desperate to get a job, who've been out of jobs for ages, who feel they've, they're dealing with bosses who are quite uh, unpleasant and toxic. So the idea of trying to spend the next phase of my life helping people who think for a living live I, that's me i mean it i'm trying to solve something for myself and if i can learn things i'll pass them on it is arrogant i think all if you do strategy if you talk in public if you do anything in public if you're just not curled up in a ball and you're trying to do something about the world there's something arrogant about that right i, I get it all right so telling someone they're broken or not normal or that you don't feel how they feel so they shouldn't feel that way or that they should follow through on their darkest thoughts isn't useful i've had all of those things 
I think for 20, 30 years, the, pre the predominant narrative, the story and the culture I grew up around in is that if you're not feeling good, you're broken. Something to do with serotonin levels or you just you don't have the social skills or the behavioral skills. Uh, and I love that in the past, especially the past five years, that there are different pieces of science coming out about this stuff. Uh, it's it just, you know, even if I'm in a dark spot, just knowing that there's new science coming out, it, it gives me like 5 or 10% relief. All right. Listening is useful. Listening is a gift. Yes, it's a skill, but if you see someone going through rough times and you can listen to them, it's not about you. It's about helping them replace a loud inner critic with an empathetic voice, even if it's temporary. So a lot of therapy, from what I understand, it, there's so many different types, but a lot of it is ha having someone who might appear too passive with you. Obviously, there are different styles of therapist and of therapy, but having someone who might seem a bit passive, who asks questions, who might reflect in an empathetic manner or empathic manner towards you, just to replace that voice in your head temporarily. I'm still finding the words for these things. Some people are better at these thoughts in public. Just know that you aren't alone and quote-unquote normal doesn't matter. Please make art and if you ever want to talk, holler. Hey Mark, it's Abby from Sheffield in the UK and I really wanted to share my experience with you today about mental health as it's something I think I've battled with most of my life and it wasn't until last year that I actually really had a turning point thanks to therapy, which actually I got from my work. I could say I had quite a difficult upbringing and I could really tell the issues that I'd not particularly addressed or I'd even made peace with were really affecting how I interpreted day-to-day -day challenges and thinking in my adult life. So, for example, I'd get stressed at work easily because I was so scared of failure and I often felt like I had no one myself to rely on and it just got a little bit too much pressure for me to handle. I remember it was one day in particular I woke up and I just remember feeling like I didn't want to be here anymore. My anxiety was so bad I still went into work just because I was so worried about if my colleagues would find out. That's when I knew that I had to do something to change the situation. I think looking back now I wish I had the confidence to take a day out or known just a little bit more about how to approach my employer asking about working from home for the day or taking the day off and I'd really advise anyone going through similar situations to just have a research about employee policies about mental health and what their employer specifically can do for them. I didn't really know how to get myself out of a negative mindset until I turned to therapy. I think the epiphany moments for me were the realisations that I hadn't really created boundaries with people. And when I realised I deserved those, I actually gained much better relationships with people around me. I think therapy especially really helped because I was never spoon-fed answers. I was always challenged to find solutions and... It really empowers you to know that you have that in you within the, the worst times that you can imagine. I could never say that therapy cured me, but I think it's really important to know that we all have mental health and it's about nurturing those on good and bad days and making sure that we keep on top of it when we can and if we can. So finding new ways of doing that like exercise or talking to friends or family. I think, especially now, mental health can often feel like something which has become a bit of a buzzword because everybody's talking about it. But I really believe that as strategists, we tend to really often overthink and because we are passionate, creative people, we naturally tend to give a lot of our energy into what we do which makes it so hard for us to find the time to really take those moments out for self-care. But I think finding a method of checking in with yourself and switching off is just so important and finding methods that really work specifically for you. Above everything, I think the key thing to remember is to never feel weak for getting help because actually it's one of the strongest things you can ever do. 
Hi, this is Julia Vanderput in Los Angeles. My own mental health journey started when I had a major depressive episode just at the beginning of my own career, which thankfully opened up a journey into therapy. It's perhaps strange to think about it in this way, but in many ways, the time of deep introspection was helpful for the rest of my career because it put me in touch with interdependence. And when we are tasked as strategists to understand humans, it's of course essential that we have empathy, not just in practice, but also intuitively that we're good at empathy. Part of my hope is that we become much better at making a diverse and inclusive environment for those with mental health struggles. The thing I keep coming back to is that we're culture makers. Our goal is to touch the heart and engage the mind. And if we're striving to have a culture and a society that is nurturing and accepting, then we need to create work that generates this. We can only make bricks from the clay we're given. So if our work environment is not accepting, anti-sexist, anti-racist, anti-bigot, can we really produce work that has that effect? Okay, this is Mariana Cotlier. So I was 18 when I had my first major depressive episode. I was in college and ended up having to leave for a semester to get help. Ever since then, I've been trying to manage my mental health, scared that you know a serious episode could happen again at any moment, and it has. I won't spin this cheesy line that depression is a secretly a gift or anything like that. It's not. It's bullshit. <laughs> but I do think it has a lot to do with the skills I have and the career I've chosen. I grew up feeling like I didn't fit and I found people scary and I found them confusing. But as a result, I studied them and tried to understand why they were the way they were and why the world was the way that they was. I felt like my environment was threatening, so I became a keen observer of it. I learned to figure out what people were really saying when their words were saying something else, and I learned to use my anxiety alarm bells as a form of intuition that something interesting and emotionally charged was going on. So I think I pursued this career because I realized the ultimate power of the heart and really of emotions over the mind and that I could try to do something useful with it. And I guess that there is something about a hope maybe that with that I can find some vindication and certainly a hope that all this suffering can have some kind of hidden purpose in it. Um, in our industry, we talk so much, probably obsessively and maybe too much about empathy, but I do think that when you've really, you know, bit the dust, when you've really hit rock bottom, when you've really seen the darkness, um, only from that standpoint can you like start to try to understand the full spectrum of human emotion um, of what like deep fear is, of what deep longing is, um, and use that to kind of put yourself in other people's shoes no matter what uh, they're facing. So that's my story, and I hope that some of it is helpful to others. Um, I'm really excited about the way uh, people have started sharing more about their mental health, and I know that it's helped me a great deal. Um, so I hope that it helps others. Hi, my name is Ben Breyer, and I'm a senior integrated planner at Havas, New York. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, I took medical leave uh, from work, not because of anything physical that happened to me, but to kind of straighten my, my brain out a little bit and take care of myself. Um, and it's an option that I wish would have been available to me a little bit sooner. I just didn't know it was even an option. Um, and so I wrote something uh, to publish on Medium that hopefully just kind of broadens that out, walks people through that process. Um, and just, you know, I think more people need to know that it's not as scary or daunting um, as it seems. And you need to take care of your brain in the same way that you take care of your body, especially in an industry like this one where sometimes the fast-pacedness um, and speed and, and hours can sometimes have a... Uh, a wear and tear of sorts on our minds. So um, I'm going to start reading uh, the piece that I wrote for Medium. It is the week of St. Patrick's Day and I'm visiting one of my best friends in Seattle. It also is a bonus that I am escaping New York during Santa Con's obnoxious Irish cousin, but 
that's not the point. Um, I was paying thanks to Jess and her fiance Daniel for hosting me by snagging us a suite at the Salish Lodge for a night. It's nestled in the armpit of Snoqualmie Falls and it is tranquility defined. Uh, our ever-present soundtrack during our stay is, is an infinite spin cycle of water acting as nature's white noise machine. The present-day Salish Lodge is a far cry from the great northern of Twin Peaks, network TV's greatest gift to weird. A digital concierge named Cooper texts me to check out of my room, a future-forward tribute to Kyle McLaughlin's illustrious role. I have the option to get a cherry pie and damn fine coffee scrub down in the spa before I leave. I'm the last one of us to shower. I throw on some clothes and walk out into the living room. I open my polka dot dop kit to conjure a ritual of hair product, deodorant, and medication. And it's when I'm lining up my pills that Daniel asks if I'm okay. His sentence starts with an uh, you know, that universal sound that kind of communicates genuine concern with that undercurrent of intrigue while he motions to my medicine. I've got eight pills that sit in front of me some of which are just over-the-counter daily medicines, things like vitamin D and some Target brand Allegra. I've got psyllium husk that just is totally bland and not stimulating in any sort of way to the eyes. Uh, but the rest of my pills, I'm calling my brain pants. Um, it's like shopping for jeans. I think finding the perfect combination of drugs to manage mental illness can be a, a battle of endurance and take a lot of time. And so, that morning, I move across my assembly line of drugs. I have a color-blocked cylinder of time-release Adderall that's filled with a cavalry of tiny spheres. That's first. And I follow that with a, a pizza slice shaped of uh, a drug called Lamictal right after. Next, I have a white sliver of Buse Bar that concludes my ceremony for the morning. But I'm going to have to rinse and repeat with the Buse Bar two more times that day as dictated by a symphony of alarms from my iPhone. I load two more doses into the chamber of my front left pocket. Before leaving, I tuck a milligram of clonopin into my small key pocket. Clonopin is the control alt delete for when my brain betrays me. Sometimes it's panic, sometimes it's disassociation, and otherwise it's something that can be unknown. Um, when I store that clonopin, it feels like I'm concealing like a secret weapon of, of last resort, sort of this, this emergency pill that's for when I'm down, but I'm not totally out. Um, in my head, it's like a, a Sig Sauer in a, in a concealed ankle holster. When I'm in my brain pants, my serotonin doesn't feel flat and the hem of my occipital lobe doesn't cut off my temporal lobe. My Wernicke's area just looks fine as hell and my brain pants enable me to strut down Canal Street with confidence I can be listening to All Day and All the Night by the Kinks if I'd like. Our brains grow with our bodies. This means that your brain pants will bend and stretch in parallel. Sometimes you'll have to take them in to get repaired, or sometimes you'll just have to purchase a new pair outright. But when my brain pants fit, I just can keep everything in. My attention deficit disorder, my depression, my anxiety, and borderline personality disorder feel high and tight. But about... Four months ago, my brain pants started to burst apart at the seams. Uh, sometimes an emotional rivet would fall to the floor, echoing like loose change in my head. And this, this kind of put me in this space where, where last July, um, I just couldn't sleep. Um, was, there was one morning where I was boring holes into the crown molding of my ceiling as if it was a magic eye poster and I took, I took a clonopin. And then eventually, 2 a.m. turned into 4 a.m. and light started to creep through the windows of my, my apartment in Queens and I still couldn't sleep so I, I took a second clonopin and it, I felt like my, my Sig Sauer that's always been my go-to in these scenarios were just firing you know blanks of benzos so to speak and I just hid underneath my comforter and my pillows and, and tried to get to sleep. Um, you know when I thought about how functionless I'd be at work the next day I just started to cry and soon it was seven in the morning and the first thing I did was I, I fired off an email to to everybody that I reported into to kind of let them know it was happening it, it was just a strange feeling my brain felt wired but my bones kind of felt like that game kerplunk from the from the 80s um if they were just poised to just tumble and fall apart at the slightest jostle at at that point, I had been awake for like 30 hours. 
Um, and so eventually I, I called a lift and they took me to an urgent care facility about a mile away. And I spoke to the doctor and he told me about episodic insomnia, which was a term that I had never heard of before, which was likely brought on by, by stress. Um, but you know, it, it could be any combination of things uh, because of all the other things that I'm, I'm dealing with on a constant, constant basis. But the doctor told me to power through and to limit the length of any naps I would take and not just to go to sleep outright so I could reset my body's, my body's clock. Felt like kind of how you'd manage jet lag. And so I did that the best that I could. Eventually I just collapsed for about 12 hours before returning to work the next day. About a week later, I had a appointment with my psychiatrist and that particular week I was seeing a, a interim doctor because my regular psychiatrist was getting married overseas. Um, it was this kind of chance encounter that was the beginning of my sort of reprocessing and healing and, and mending of my brain. And so since she was basically brand new to me, I was telling her about myself, but I just told her everything in detail about, you know, my shifts in mood that felt quite dramatic and how when I would sleep for hours, it would feel like I'd gotten no sleep at all. Um, I talked about how, you know, kind of out of control my anxiety had been and how I, I felt like I was unable to handle it. Um, I have these things called anchors. Uh, I, I keep them in my apartment, things that I can sort of physically reference um, that help keep me grounded during these moments of anxiety and, and those weren't necessarily working either. Um, and so we talked a little bit and she presented medical leave as an option, which I did never really even thought of before for anything pertaining to mental illness. And so we developed a plan um, about things that I would do while I was on leave. Um, I experimented with the timing and dosage of, of all my medicine. And that included things like taking Adderall at night, which is a stimulant and ended up keeping me up for a long time. Um, I looked into a sleep study. Um, I had my thyroid tested. I made changes to my diet. I tried different forms of mindfulness. Um, I took some time to go home to Ohio and had some conversations with my parents about the state of my brain. Turns out my, my dad has some unspoken similarities to uh, some of the things that were going on with me. Um, and when I thought I was ready, I went, I went back to work. Um, I think it's really important that people read the terms of the Family and Medical Leave Act because I had no idea how any of this worked before this chance encounter with my psychiatrist. Um, the, the FMLA uh, will protect your job for up to 12 weeks before your company can replace you outright. And so if you're worried about doing something like this because of the tangibility of your employment, you don't. You're, you're safer than you think, and you shouldn't just fear the outright loss of the job. But the financials of medical leave do differ from employer to employer. So in my situation, my sick days, because uh, we have a finite number of sick days um, at my job, they were drained and applied to my leave. Um, insurance kind of covered the rest. Um, anything after a length of time associated with the time I spent employed here at, at, at Havas, um, I, I got a full week of, of pay and then any, any additional leave I would take, my pay would drop down to two thirds of my salary. Um, you know, I stressed out medical care costs money. Um, and it's, I think it's really important to not look at the dollar signs um, associated with taking medical leave, even if they feel impossible to ignore. You know, we, we do this crazy thing where we insure things in our homes. And uh, by doing that, we kind of contradict our ideas of pricelessness by, by quantifying art and photo albums with, with some sort of cash value, implying that they are replaceable. But when it comes to your brain, you can't do this. Like State Farm is not going to pop out to hand you a check that will allow you to procure a exact replacement of your, of your mind. It doesn't work like that. And so know that when you go on leave, you can disseminate as, as little or as much information to your coworkers as, as, as I like, which is very surprised when my benefits person um, told me this. And so you can be as, as simple or as, as underspoken as you want and just say that you're dealing with something personal and you'll be returning to work in, in three weeks. Um, I don't think we have these conversations often enough, to be frank. And I feel like 
mental wellness is kind of put into a black box um, within, you know, most professional work environments. And so I made it a point to be honest with my team. And I told maybe about a dozen people at work what was going on and just that I wasn't sleeping. I, I wasn't at my best and that I was really planning to take some time out and recalibrate my brain. Uh, you know, it's, we live in this world of like team calendars and we can see all these appointments that everyone has, it's, you know, people are going out of office for a dentist or they might have like a regular physical therapy appointment that, that occurs every Tuesday at 5 PM. But I believe that repairing a herniated disc or filling a cavity, it's just a part of normal human upkeep in the same way that rebalancing something like an SSRI might be. Um, drugs are just like physical therapy or dentistry. Um, they exist for a reason because you may need them to function um, as a human. So when I have appointments for things like my psychiatrist, I, I label them honestly because I, I believe that concealing mental illness benefits nobody, especially people like me. It's just making the world a, a you know kind of a steeper hill to climb. And I really hope that I'm able to erode at that stigma, even if it's in a small way and just one calendar invite at a time. Um, so I think it's important to know that while you're, the terms of your leave will have a start and an end date, they're not necessarily binding. And if you need more time, you'll be able to take it. It's your psychiatrist that has the final say of, of when you go back to work. And if you return to work and you decide to uh, take more leave, that option is, is also available. You can just re-engage with your psychiatrist or whoever you see, your medical practitioner, and let them know what's going on. Uh, and know though, and I think this is really important, that the law doesn't compel your employer to ease you back into work with, with ease or compassion, that the law doesn't make a distinction between, uh, you know, I'm, I'm gonna say cruelty versus normalcy in the same way that your brain might. You are going to feel very different possibly about the tasks that you're asked to do versus what you can handle. Um, but it's just complicated. Uh, mental illness is fragmented. There are no obvious indicators of what your brain can or cannot endure at that time. Um, it's, it's not asking someone to run a marathon after surviving a car crash or putting someone on a week-long cross-country business trip after the death of a family member. Those are, those are all really obvious bad ideas. Uh, and so just remember that you are the only person that knows the thresholds of what your, what your brain can tolerate. And so if someone asks you to do something that you aren't ready for, um, be it a, a colleague or a superior, just do your best to say no. Say no over and over again until the limit that you're being pushed to is respected. It's, it's like unsheathing Excalibur. Um, it, it's, you know, we have this inclination and desire to help and and, and be our best and put out good work. But, you know, protecting your brain is, is paramount or else you're not going to be the best that you can be at your job. Um, I, when I initially went through uh, the process of attaining leave, my psychiatrist recommended 30 days of leave. Yet that sounded like a pretty standard number when I was, when I was talking to her, but obviously it's gonna differ a bit. Um, I took fewer days, I took 19. I was trying to find this middle ground where I could be good to my clients and my, my employer while, while carving out space to work on me. Um, I, there was an upcoming project that I had talked about in a meeting with my boss. I, I didn't want to miss out on that. I, I was looking forward to working on it. Um, under no circumstances should you compromise the length of your medical leave based on what's happening at your job and if you only take one piece of advice from this this article or this conversation i that's the most important thing your your work's gonna be absorbed and life's gonna go on and that's why we have teams at, at agencies um letting go of that thought can be really difficult but maslow's hierarchy of needs knows no gray areas and confusing physiological needs for needs of safety um can can set you back significantly and I learned that the hard way. The project that I've been working on had, had been reassigned by the time I had returned, and I really wish I had those 11 days back. Um, the, the only thing you can do truly is just to be the best that you can and, and take all the time that's been allotted to repairing your mind. Um, today, I put on my, my brain pants the same way that I did before I went on leave. 
um, aside from one tiny dosage adjustment to my daily medical regimen. Um, during that time, I, I styled my brain pants in different ways. I, I would cuff them up high or wear them with a belt or put them on at night or on other days, I wouldn't wear any brain pants at all. But the thing about medicine is that sometimes it can obscure the truth a bit. And if you do something like trip and, and skid your knee across gravel, you're not going to know the severity of your wound unless you're bleeding through your genes. You can get an infection without an, an obvious pool of blood. Um, and so for me, medical leave was the function of kind of taking those brain pants off and being comfortable with this idea of mental nudity, kind of seeing that clonopin had become the default instead of this glass breaker for emergencies that I was using a couple times a week. Um, sort of let me see the shifts in my mood in a more honest way and in other things that were going on, this, these kind of increases in bouts of dyslexia where I felt like I was kind of screwing up more at work, these, these moments of disassociation where um, I would have it a hard time really focusing and, and how bad my sleep actually was. Um, medical leave, you know, let me better work on fixing those things. But I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, we're, we're in a constant state of flux and as humans. We are eternal works in progress and medical leave is not a permanent solution. It's like a Volvo. You're going to constantly need to fill it with gas and change its oil or else it's going to, you know, you're going to have to buy a new car if you're taking bad care of it. Um, some, one day, someday, you know, I might need a, a new regimen of medicine, a new pair of brain pants. Um, I don't think that's right now, but you know, despite coming to that conclusion, the leave I took just markedly changed my life. It, identifying it as an option wasn't just a fortunate accident because my normal psychiatrist was out of town. It felt like, you know, Twin Peaks, like Jupiter and Saturn aligning conjunct. It exposed a new dimension, a, a path forward that served to ground me and, and re-fortify my mind. And that's why I wrote this for, for World Mental Health Day. I think it's really important that everyone knows that this is an option um, and there should be no stigma around anybody that, that chooses to go on uh, medical leave for, to, to, to fix, their, fix their mind. Thank you very much. How, how did it feel to write that, Ben? Um, I really, you know, I'm a pretty open and honest person. Like per, kind of what I said earlier, I, I was pretty clear with, everyone that I felt comfortable with, like telling people why I was going on leave, um, but kind of spending time to follow that thread from, from beginning to end. Like, well, one, it made me realize how much I overcame and, um, and kind of how much I learned about myself through that, that process and how much functional, how much more functional I've been. Like following that thread is, is, was really important to kind of concluding that process. And, you know, after kind of intermittent conversations that I've, I've had with trusted friends and family members. I just, I think it's important to have these conversations out in the open. And um, I, I think it starts by, you know, writing your truth and, and telling stories that are difficult sometimes like this. So mm. yeah, it, I, it made me feel more completely, I suppose. And, and it's like, I'm proud of how <laughs> I'm proud of how I got past everything mm. and you know I'm still working but I, I I feel proud that is the the sort of most salient takeaway how did it feel to read it out uh I mean like anything like I, I it feels just like you know that article it's, it's long <laughs> um hearing my own voice and just kind of reliving all of these things that happened to me it was I mean it's it's cathartic for sure. Um, and as I'm kind of reliving those moments, especially the days where I, I first kind of had that snap where I was awake for 30 hours, like I've never known my body to feel that kind of fatigue. And in the moments where I'm rereading that, my mind's kind of ping-ponging back and forth to, to those moments and like the things I had to do in order to take care of myself. Um, echoing a lot of the things I said earlier was a lot. Um, and even when you're writing these things, you're writing them in silence. And so anything that you say out loud, I feel like becomes so much more real than um, the things that you keep inside or even the things that you express in, in other channels where you're not necessarily using your voice. Mm. So I can't see you and I couldn't, I wasn't watching <laughs> as you were reading, but I do listen. I was listening intently. Were there 
parts of what you read out that even if it was for just a millisecond felt difficult to actually get through? Did you find certain phrases or memories more emotional? Um, I think, and I think it's one of the more helpful pieces, but like going back to that moment in, in Seattle where um, my, my friend's fiance asked if, if I was okay and kind of just like outlining, like, here's what I have to take every day saying something like that out loud like I think the default is that you want to keep that inside because people are going to think less of you they're going to think that you can't handle um any challenges or work that comes your your way but I'm I'm far from the only person on planet earth that deals with this stuff so it, it just I get a bit of anxiety reading that list out because it feels so long and it feels like there's a lot going on and there is a lot going on but it it doesn't mean anything detrimental about me. And I think that's the hardest part about having these conversations about mental illness. Um, the, the shock and relief that I felt when knowing that this was an option, like I, I remember the process and I don't really talk about this during the article, but the, the time between when I discovered this in an option and when I went on leave, like it was a high point of anxiety because it felt like this very clear solution that I wish I would have known about all along. And, you know, like as soon as I discovered it as an option, I was just like, I, I want this yesterday. Like I want to start repairing my, my, my brain as, as quickly as I can. And so there was, there were really tight feelings of anxiety with that. And um, returning to work was, was a bit of a shock. Like everything just wasn't better immediately um, and, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's kind of hard for people to understand, like, what you can and, and cannot do and what your mind can and cannot tolerate. And so, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking about that, like, it's the more of these conversations that happen, like, the more clear it will be, I think, to, um, you know, talk to people uh, on your team who are coming back from medical leave or if you are someone who, who manages a team, like, what are the best ways to to re-engage someone? Um, it's it's not just a vacation. It's 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 something where you're really taking time um, to 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 work on yourself. And I'm mm. you know glad that I took the time to do it. It is intense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it, and just from a writing point of view, what because I'd written down and I'd read what you were going to read out before you read it, but and it stuck with me. But that. Uh, that sound that your friend made as a mixture of genuine concern and intrigue and potential judgment, uh, not to cheapen this conversation by also talking about strategy, but to me talking about strategy is talking about the human and the brain and creativity and whatnot, but that's a beautiful way to approach writing and insight. Do you write insights like that at work? I mean, so I, I try and write from a, a place of, of, of playfulness and, and honesty, you know, like, I think so often in, in when we speak of strategy, we kind of talk about these, these, these weapons of warfare. We attack like brands on an axis or like put up a rigorous defense and that starts to inform like the, the insights that we make. But sometimes it's truly something as, as human as when you, when you communicate like a guttural sound like that, it's, it's not just judgment, it's concern and, and bewilderment as well. Like, I think things, it's really interesting that you call that out and, and bring it back to strategy because like, I, I think that is, it is insightful. And, you know, I, I want to bring it, it's inspiring. I want to bring more insights like, like that to the table and figure out how they are a line of best fit in, in the work that I do. Mm. Yeah. Cause what I find interesting, cause that's, be you're a beautiful writer. I mean, you write beautifully. Thank you. Uh, which I guess means that you're a beautiful writer. And what I find interesting is if someone can write as well as you can, I'm demanding to see that in the work. <laughs> and I, I, I know that it's not easy. And especially if you've had some kind of writing career, a journalist or author before you've then entered into advertising, you're like, oh, these are separate worlds. They're not. The advertising world needs that kind of writing. The, your teams need that writing. Otherwise, it just leads to kind of bizarre meetings and unnecessary presentations and long documents. I, I absolutely agree. And I think that there are more similarities to the sort of structural foundations of, of advertising and, and journalism than a lot of people think. 
you know, the first place that I think a lot of people go to is this idea of the narrative being the same. If you can, if you're a writer and you've been a reporter, you can craft a story, you have the skills to craft a brief. And I think that's, that's true, even if you have to kind of relearn and rework different muscles that you've, you've never had to, to use before to, to sort of, you know, make that story more correct feeling um, in advertising versus journalism. But that, the sort of unspoken similarity, I think, is the the research that we do, the the time that we spend, like intimately getting to know a problem and 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 fix it, like, or in in the case of writing, like, what's the most important thing that you need people to take away? Like, it's the things that you're doing in the background, the anthropology, that it takes up the bulk of your work and it makes your output so much more meaningful. To be frank. Um, when you're a writer, you're, the stories you write, unless, at least in my experience as like a political journalist, most of my stories were pretty succinct. Um, nothing really beyond like a thousand words. That's such a small amount of your output um, relative to the phone calls that you're making, the research that you're doing, um, you know, kind of outlining the best way to, to tell the story. Um, and I think that's true of, of strategy too. You, like you spend... Um, so much time like in the ether talking to people doing the same research um, and what is presented is not necessarily all of that research you, you've got a one-page brief or you might have something that's a bit longer that you show to creatives in order to get them you know inspired to to make good work on everything from you know an integrated brand campaign to you know something small and, and tactical like a like an app install brief or a or just a quick digital um, digital audio placement. Um, the, the stories are the same and the research is the same. I have two questions, two last questions for you. One is around the metaphor, the idea of brain pants. Where did that come from? So I, I have known that I've been, a, I, I was diagnosed with AD, ADHD when I was a sophomore in college, so about 19. Um, and, and everything else kind of came in, in bursts later. And, you know, as I started to learn new things about my brain, um, I, you know, would kind of recalibrate the, the medicine that I was on. Um, the, the first kind of, uh, the first time that I started taking medicine for my ADHD, it was medicine that I no longer take anymore. Um, it had kind of served its purpose. It wasn't, it just didn't fit anymore. And so, I think there is this misconception, especially among people who have mental illness, but even myself when I was like early on in my journey that like your solution is locked down. Um, but it, you know, the, the analogy that came to my head, is like, it's like a pair of pants for my brain. Like you can wear out a pair of pants. Sometimes you will, <laughs> and in a pinch, you'll get like a fast fashion equivalent of, of what, of, of medicine that is a plan to quickly fix what's going on in your brain. Maybe that's something like Xanax because you're really anxious, but that's not going to be like the best fit. It's going to fall apart. Like you've got to take your time and do your research and figure out what the, what the best approach is for you. And a lot of what I did during my leave was a kind of recalibration to make sure that there wasn't anything else that I needed in order to help me get through the day and, and be the best version of myself. Um, and yeah, it, you have to put in work and putting in work isn't just therapy, it's figuring out what the right balance of medicine is in order to, uh, to be yourself. Yeah. Uh, and then when you found out about the family history of this, was that a, a difficult and easy conversation? And how did you feel when you discovered that it existed in the family? So, sorry. Um, so it's, it's kind of been like a fragmented conversation. Like I, my, my parents and I are, are very different. Um, I, I love them to death. We have, we have very different opinions on things like politics. And so it's, it's hard to talk with them about the same openness sometimes. Um, even though anxiety and depression runs pretty deep into my family, it runs pretty deep into my extended family. Um, you know, I had, a, I had a conversation with my dad and it was something that like I knew in the back of my head, but kind of like reading, reading my piece out loud until you say the thing out loud, it doesn't become real. Um, my dad is a small business owner and uh, he owns a print finishing company. And as such, 
he works really non-traditional hours, like worked a lot of late nights growing up as a kid and work was always on his, his, his brain. Like he was the last line of defense between him and his business. And you felt like he was the sole arbiter of, you know, the, the business's success. And so when he was anxious, he, he did a very similar thing to me where he would just sleep on the couch um, and, you know, kind of move around and like just be unable to sleep. He didn't get good sleep when, uh, when he was my age um, down to like, there's, there's something called restless foot syndrome and where you just, you're kind of like thumper from, from Bambi. Like you, you just kind of lay there and can't sleep like going down to that level and just like saying that out loud, I'm like that this, it makes it more real and having that background and knowing where it comes from, especially when you're talking to medical professionals will help inform the direction in which you take things like, like therapy, for instance, knowing that there's like a family history of this. Okay. Awesome. Where can people find the article? Um, so, so right now it's, it's just on, it's on medium. Um, it's where I, I, I publish a lot of things. Um, I am just, I'm, I'm sharing it a little more broadly, but uh, yeah, if you just look up my name on Medium, you can find it there. Um, my last name is not spelled like the ice cream. It's, uh, it's B-R-E-I-E-R. Um, and yeah, if, please, please read it, especially if you're someone that um, is, is struggling with mental illness and, and feel like it's, you feel like it's getting in the way of, of work and as well as your personal life. I just, I hope it's helpful that people know that this is like a real option that you can take if you need it awesome well thank you so much for sharing your experience story your beautiful words with us today and yeah i'm going to be a strategy nerd i hope you <laughs> i hope you can write like that in more of your office documents in the future. oh i it thanks for the reminder i i hope i can too and like i i know this is a weird note to end it on but but God, if there's any question that you have about either the process or like how I landed on this place, like God, like I, I'm all over social media and I'm, I'm like more than happy to like take a few minutes and, and, and shoot the shit with you. <laughs> Beautiful. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, th thank you for listening. World mental health day you're not alone you're probably not broken and and i think like if you've listened this far either you're desperately trying to understand somebody else or you're trying to understand yourself and it's totally cool a huge shout out to all the voices that that you heard today this and the stories that those voices brought i'm going to try to do more of this in the future if you're contemplating what to do with whatever's going on inside your head, feel free to reach out to a healthcare person. There's good chat about it in Sweathead on Facebook, in the Sweathead community on Facebook. It's a very loving uh, and supportive community, which is incredible. I appreciate everybody in there helping each other out. Take care of yourselves. Definitely, definitely do some art. Peace.